Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Good evening, everybody. Um, I, my name is Adele Hudson, and I teach here in the Film and Media program and, and the MFA in Arts and Media. And I'm really delighted to be able to um, introduce Ursula Beeman to all of you. She is an artist whose work I've followed for about two decades now. And every time I see one of her works, I learn something more. So it's really exciting to have her here. And after the screenings, we're actually going to be on stage and do some um, questions and answers and learn more about um, this work that isn't necessarily um, apparent when you just see the, um, the film. So for those of you who don't know her, um, Ursula Beeman is an artist, theorist, and a video essayist and writer whose work has been exhibited in solo and group exhibitions around the world, including um, her two-channel video installation, Forest Law, which was shown at the Sharjah Art Biennale here in 2017. Um, if you get a chance to go to Venice, you can see two works by her. Um, Deep Weather is on view at the Everybody Talks About the Weather exhibition at the Fondazio Prado, and also at the um, Venice Architecture Biennale, um, video work from Devine Universidad, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, is on view. Um, Beyond these prestigious venues where she's shown her work, what I think is more important with any artist is um, what they, um, how they engage with the work they do and who they work with and how, what uh, results from it. And a lot of Ursula's work it comes from long-term collaborations, and these are with people from different disciplines as well as people from different um, cultures. Um, her early work focused for the large part on making legible um, how gender intersects with globalization, particularly through different technologies. And in a video essay that I teach in a lot of my classes called Europlex, for example, she looks at how Moroccan women navigate and actually become, quote, time travelers because they move from Morocco into one of the Spanish enclaves, which is on a different time zone, um, to perform different sorts of work that's allowed um, given the um, politics and economics of the European Union and its relationship with North Africa. Within this, um, what I found really interesting is despite these structural inequalities, she learns, um, finds ways that these women navigate through globalization's power and carve out spaces of resistance. Um, she's also done other work on this, looking at other locations such as the Mexican-American borderlands, Southeast Asia, as well as Southwest Asia near the Caspian Sea. In each of these, she organizes complexities, offering a feminist critique of globalization's invisible structures and technologies. Her more recent work shifts um, from its scope from the global threat of globalization to the planetary threat of the climate crisis, shifting from what humans do on the surface of the planet to what ecologies make life possible on the planet. Um, much of this work engages with indigenous communities, um, drawing upon cosmologies that extend beyond Western rationalism. So rather than invisible power of globalization, she's looking towards the unseen world of spirits and non-human agency. Ways of knowing merge with ways of feeling and being together, marking a radical departure from the dominant practices of extracting knowledge through rational, rational science, um, which culminated basically in this, the, the, the climate crisis that we have. The work that teaches us to think, feel, and understand through multi-sensory experiences, where categories of human and non-human, of living and non-living, of natural and artificial cannot be disentangled. Modern critical distance is no longer possible as a form of human control over nature, 
or in control of the non-human world, which is evident in the different ways that the films that we're gonna to screen tonight. So two films, the first one we're going to look at is Acoustic Ocean, which is set in Northern Norway, and it focuses on a Sami woman, uh, indigenous person, Sami woman, who moves between indigenous and scientific um, forms of knowledge in a science fictional quest for understanding human, marine, mechanic, organic, climactic, and digital elements of life. The second one that we're, second film that we're going to watch is Forest Mine. And this one's set in southern Colombia and emerges from an investigation, um, emerges from an invitation to collaborate with indigenous um, Inga people at a much larger project, which we'll, we'll talk about afterwards. Among other topics, the film considers how ancestral knowledge and non-human intelligence were belittled by colonial and modern science, and only now can DNA technologies kind of catch up what has already been known for centuries with these people. Um, the work is richly complex, and we're really lucky to have her here for the Q&A. Um, after the um, Q&A is finished, there's also going to be a reception outside, so if you have some um, private questions you want to ask her, you'll have an opportunity to do so. And before we start, I just want to um, acknowledge a huge thank you to Nahid Ahmed for making this possible. I've wanted to bring, Ursula, I've wanted to bring you here since we opened in 2010, and this is the first time I got to do it, so I'm really thankful to Nahid for making that possible, as well as everybody out at the um, NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. All right, thank you. All right, everybody, let's um, please give a round of applause for Ursula Beeman for her films. <laughs> and um, everybody, you will have the opportunity to ask questions. So if you have questions, there are people moving around with the, uh, microphones, and also we've got two at this thing um, in the court, in the, what do you call, aisles. But I'm going to start off by asking a couple of questions. Um, these films have a lot of information. Um, <laughs> And I've seen them before, so it was interesting to watch them again. And um, I was thinking of questions I was going to ask you, and then there were so many questions, I forgot the questions, the original questions. But I thought one of the things that maybe would be a good way to open them up to people is discuss how you went about making them and start there, and then we'll get into actually the ideas in the films. So I don't know if we should start with um, Forest Mine because we just watched it and people fresh or go back to Acoustic Ocean, Forest Mind. Everybody's quiet. Okay, so Forest Mind was part of a much larger project, and we we talked a little bit about this, and this was just the film that you kind of took took away from it, and there was lots of other parts of work. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more, and I was calling it um, Devenir, um, reading it in French, and so it's... Yeah, first, I should start by thanking you Sorry? for bringing me here. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dale, and um, I'm thrilled to be here and uh, discuss my work with you. It's a rare opportunity. Um, and you saw Forest Mind is a commissioned piece, actually, by a curator from the National University in Colombia, the art museum there. And... Um, and she had the idea of sending me down to the rainforest and uh, visit a region that has been closed off by the um, armed conflict for 30 years. Um, and uh, I, was, I didn't know what to expect, but uh, they organized everything beautifully and an indigenous leader, Hernando Chindoy, who you see actually in the film, accompanied me for over a month, driving me through the territory and meeting a lot of people from his community, but other from other communities. 
And at the end of the trip, he asked me if I could also help him with something. And it was the creation of an indigenous university in his territory. Um, because he felt that uh, their knowledge is no, has not been uh, acknowledged by uh, the Colombian uh, government also and education system, and that he wanted to renegotiate um, certain things, the terms also on, um, uh, you know, that have been defined by a colonial relationship and he felt that it's only on the level of a university that he could actually renegotiate these terms and um, and so I was thrilled to be invited to uh, collaborate on it and uh, uh, and so for the last almost five years I have been involved with Inga uh, through many, many meetings in the field and through exchange uh, of students between Switzerland and Colombian um, and the Inga students, really, um, to develop a relationship that becomes more sustainable and um, that can support their, their ideas of, of teaching ancestral knowledge, but also combine it somehow with Western knowledge and Western science, and um, where it is compatible, of course, ecological forms of, um, of science. And that, uh, that was the frame within which I started producing um, also a bunch of uh, audiovisual projects. Uh, we went together in the field to do interviews with the elders, with um, social leaders, with dietas. Um, and that was the wish of these two Inga women that you see in the film, who are the daughters of the shamans. And, um, and so we came back with a lot of interviews and materials. And from this, um, I produced uh, my own research, which is Forest Mind, but also uh, numerous other videos that I then, which are really meant for the university and to teach the younger generation of the Inga people about their own territorial history, their memory, because that history has never been told to anyone. And the state doesn't really acknowledge that these territories are occupied and used by the Inga people for 160 years, for several hundred years, in fact. And, um, and so creating this memory and making it more tangible is an important way of also claiming the land, you know. I think that's interesting because it's, um, you know, we're just seeing one part of it here. And what the whole film is about is how we can only access one part. Um, so I love the way that um, you do this in this film with the voiceover and also with the text, and you've done this with all the films that you've made that I've seen, is kind of translating it into a language that maybe we'll understand. And um, one of the things that I know is part of the whole Becoming Earth project, of which this, these two films are, one, are part, two parts, is coming up with a new language. And you describe it as a language, a video language, art language. Um, I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about um, how that changed because the very first part of this project was over 10 years ago. Um, so over this decade, um, what are some of the, the breakthroughs that you've had of you know, getting out of your own mindset coming from a Western institution, learning this rational type of um, science 
um, and DNA, and then being challenged with things that, you know, it, it takes the work of imagination to even accept that they exist. And that leap of faith to, to be like, okay, I'm not going to be able to access this because it's not mine. Um, but I know that it's there and I want to communicate this. So how do you, I mean, how do you um, come up with the strategies that you use? <laughs> oh, la, la. Um, well, Becoming Earth, first of all, is actually a project that I did also with the same curator during COVID times when I couldn't go anywhere. So we decided to make a, a kind of a monograph of my work, uh, of all the works who dealt with climate change, with the ecological crisis, with biodiversity, with all these kind of indigenous uh, topics. And... Um, and I realized, I, I had to um, realize how these works uh, connect with each other. And, um, and several of them, even since Forest Law that you saw at the Sharjah Biennial and Acoustic Ocean and so on, they work with the idea of an indigenous scientist because I feel this is really a symbolic figure, a very charismatic figure that can um, break some of the assumptions we make um, with this rational science, which is uh, we fix everything with technology, etc. And at the same time, it also um, upgrades our opinion we have of the indigenous people and start thinking of their knowledge as expertise, which is what uh, Vaira is claiming in the film, is she's, um, she's asking for epistemic justice too. Um, and I think science has really wiped out all these alternative ways of thinking about nature in much more uh, um, harmonious is the word that the indigenous in the Amazon use a lot, but it's uh, uh, in a more wholesome way. We we have uh, we have not listened to the oceans. We thought it was a silent space, but in fact, it's totally vocal. It's totally alive. It's communicative, and we only find out now because we happen to have the instruments by now. Um, to understand these things better. And, um, and the same is true for the way indigenous people sense in a variety of dimensions, um, whereas we have really focused on the rational mind and our very limited sensorial apparatus um, that we have, um, where... Uh, uh, whereas indigenous really open their minds to so many other ways of being. Um, of course, also through the help of ayahuasca, which is a, a psychoactive agent. And, um, and of course, this whole discussion about the intelligence of nature, the intelligence of plants has been um, discussed so much in recent years. Um, and science admits that there are so many more intelligent forms of um, communicating and interacting through chemical, um, you know, 
we have all read about this by now. But um, science does not go as far as allowing or admitting uh, that nature has intention. I think that's where science stops. Indigenous people have no problem with this idea. <laughs> so in that sense, uh, there is really um, a distinction. And it's fascinating. I mean, I'm always love things that teach me that I don't know anything. Like I really, I think that's the most exciting thing to encounter with any sort of artwork. And I love the way that you um, actually put the films together. So you're resisting the kind of observational, like we're just going to observe and understand, which is a total mode in documentary. And you bring in all these kind of playful moments that kind of challenge us. And it seems kind of playful, but actually it's super, super like dense with information. Um, and I think that's a fantastic part of it. And I thought I would ask one more question about acoustic ocean and then open it up. And I can't see people that well because of the lights here. So if we maybe bring up the lights in the middle a little bit. But with acoustic ocean, and I mentioned this to you um, earlier today. The first time I watched it, I completely thought that, um, does, is anybody from Sweden or Norway who's here? No, okay. Someone there. So, oh wait, somebody, okay. Do you recognize the actor? Okay. Um, so people from Sweden, Norway, and maybe Finland as well, I don't know where the, the shows are shown, will recognize a very famous actor whose name is? Uh, Sofia Janok. Yeah. She performs the character, she's Sami, a Sami actor, and she performs the character of the scientist. And when I watched the film, I thought that she was performing actual scientific research. And I thought all those sounds were sounds that she was getting and completely forgot about the prologue. <laughs> um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the choices of how you, you worked on the film, reveal some of the secrets that obviously we wouldn't be able to pick up unless we, we know everything that you know, like the archives, the particular instruments, and how this came together is this way to um, kind of show us things that we don't know. And particularly um, the scene where she looks straight at the camera and she kind of tells us what her grandmother told us which is probably more of the, I don't know, I'm gonna ask, is it really true or was it put together from other people's knowledge? And then the, the whales at the end, you know, the songs of the whales. Um, so anyway, reveal some of the secrets to that, which I think will make people have a much richer understanding of the film. Yeah, well, this too was actually a commissioned piece and it was to celebrate the, um, the 400 years of Mayflower um, so it's really an, an Atlantic, invitation to an Atlantic exhibition. And I immediately realized that I wanted to work really with, not with the surface, like the trading and the black Atlantic and so on, but, but really about this three-dimensional living space that is underneath. And, and that's how I got the idea of starting to um, create um, acoustic interaction with the, with the sonic dimension of, um, of the ocean. And uh, I just did a, quite a bit of research actually in Exeter. There's a great uh, institute at the university who, who researches uh, fish language and six, uh, fish dialogues and so on. Um, and, uh, and at that time, you know how it happened sometimes by chance, I was invited to the Lofoten Island to give a talk to the opening of a new building at the art film art school there. And I said, oh my God, this landscape, I think I'm gonna do everything here. And, um, and that's how I decided to do that. And um, 
and then begin to research uh, who, who could actually be acting as a marine biologist that I wanted to uh, create. Um, and it came a bit from the previous piece, Sub-Atlantic, where I created a dialogue, uh, but only not a dialogue, a narrative of a, um, of a figure that lived several thousand years. Uh, actually marking the moment of the last ice melt um, where, you know, the island suddenly uh, kind of, the, the water rose in, enormously in the Shetland Islands, it's almost disappeared. Um, and so in that film that was in that previous film, it was just a narrated figure. And in this one, I thought, I'm going to try a performance with a real person in it. And that was my first one. It was totally experimental for me. Everyone else does it already, I don't know for how long, but for me it was new. And, um, and so I wanted to also work with someone who knew a bit what she was doing, you know. Uh, and she is a musician, a, uh, a music composer, and a performer occasionally, yeah. And... Uh, and since she was um, actress in an, in an, one of these great Scandinav Scandinavian series, um, she was very well known. Uh, everyone knew her when we came to the hotel. They greeted her. So, um, yeah. So that was for the visuals. And I hired um, um, a... Uh, what you would call that, a theater designer, a scenic designer, to create all these props based on research we did on what hydrophones actually look like. And he, he then created these um, instrument, these pelicans, pelican um, um, suitcases with all these instruments in it. Uh, because I wanted like to create a, almost like a, an animal radio where you could plug in all these different sound tracks coming from the sub-Atlantic. And, and so he did that. But the actual sounds were coming from an archive of scientists in, um, in various places. One particular one is... Uh, I think it's called, I don't know, Woodhall or something in, in California or in, on, the, on the Atlantic Ocean, actually. Um, so there were hundreds of recordings that scientists did in the 70s, um, going out on little boats and creating all these wonderful uh, sonic archives. And today you wouldn't be able to do that anymore. It would be... The sonic pollution of the ocean is too big. You wouldn't get these noise, these these voices in that same way anymore. But it's a combination of a lot of different materials. And then I worked also with someone who did these um, these microscopic um, animate, uh, not animations. They're like usually microscopic film um, photographs. But he does microscopic films. He's based in Paris. So, yeah, a lot of research for short film. <laughs> but um, the thing that I particularly like is that all those recordings from the 70s can no longer be heard mm. today if we use the same instruments because mm -hmm. it's the shipping traffic is one of yeah. the big noise polluters. And that is, I mean, it's extraordinary because it links in with um, particularly these two projects and other work. 
is how little we're aware of in our daily lives. So at least I, that's been my big takeaway. It's like all these things I'm not hearing, all these things. I mean, mm -hmm. I know that I can't hear whale songs, yeah. um, sounds, because our human ears aren't used for it, but just how little we access is extraordinary. And yet we as humans think that we know everything and <laughs> move about the world yeah. doing what we want to do, at least a lot of us. Um, that's true, but artists also have the role of bringing it together somehow. I mean, Acoustic Ocean is a poem. It's a science fictional poetry, right? So it's a very special language that I'm uh, using in there. Whereas Forest Mind is more, uh, I'm trying to convey a number of uh, scientific facts. Uh, and the prologue uh, about the... Um, the hologram and and it's a quantum entanglement also on the edge of the hologram and I mean this is Nobel Prize astrophysicists who speak like that and I think it's just as crazy sounding as what this shaman tells us which is something that he experiences in his vision you know and so I think it's interesting that uh, we, we think of um, the indigenous um, way of thinking as, as indigenous cosmology. But science, too, has its own cosmology, and we should think about it in those terms as well. It's a culture. It's a culture that we have created. And, um, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, I'm going to open for questions from the audience. Get their hands over here. If somebody could bring the microphone. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you for this informative film. Uh, my question is, do, uh, uh, do you think it's possible to integrate uh, uh, indigenous science and modern science together? And, uh, 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 and in what possible ways can indigenous science help us, help us further develop modern science or like rational science, as you have stated? I didn't fully understand that the indigenous science and the Western science could be integrated. Yeah, like, do you think they can, they can be integrated together? I don't see the need to integrate them. Uh, I think they are two different knowledge systems, and I think they can be in dialogue. Um, it's not that I want to bash science or anything. I'm very, I take science very seriously, and I think it's very interesting how science uses images to produce knowledge. Um, I think it's up to us artists sometimes to reflect on that because no, um, images is our, is our field. So we have a different way of reflecting on, on, on these kind of visual, visual phenomena. Um, but I think uh, it's it's, it would be a good time to start allowing for a greater diversity of knowledge, diversity of knowledge systems, you know, and not just, um, you know, s curriculums at universities usually exclude that kind of knowledge. Uh, that's what I'm saying. I'm just pleading for more integrating these knowledges more in our curriculum, not into Western science. And why do they exclude them? Like, like, are they like, like, is, is it, is it political reasons or? Well, um, 
I think what she's saying is that it's uh, they have an empirical practice of knowledge. Their way of knowing has a lot to do with their way of being with the territory. They learn from the territory, going through the territory, being in dialogue with the territory. This is how they learn and um, constantly produce knowledge about their environment. Um, and it's not something that you can teach in books to a large uh, group of students. You know, it's very individual kind of experience. And, um, and so it's less, maybe less systematic. Uh, and therefore it has uh, been falling out a bit on, uh, in those, in those uh, scientific methods. That's, that's what I would suppose, suppose. That makes a lot of sense. You an you've answered my question. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> I think another thing that you were saying also is that a lot of it is embodied. Yeah. So it's through that repetition. So um, here in UAE, there's a lot of people who um, talk about the local knowledge, the indigenous knowledge, mm. traditional knowledge of you know, fishers, fishermen yes. who go out fish, and they kind of know the tides. And just like the Sami scientist or the um, Inca people sense things differently. Mm -hmm. Because the air, the water is a quote medium, and they can read it. Where exactly. you know, with Western science, you can't read that. And also the same in the desert. So there's a lot of um, yeah interesting things that are left out of our curriculum um, that artists are hopefully bringing back yeah. in for us. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions? The, the lights are difficult for me to see. Okay, we see somebody can there. Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, yeah. Hello. Hello. Uh, Thank you for the presentation screening, and uh, it's an honor seeing you. First time I heard about your art when I was in Chicago, in the School of Art and Stuff Chicago, and we talk about you in art and technology program there. And uh, I don't know, somehow for, till today, I was thinking you are the woman actually playing. Maybe. Yeah, here I am, you see? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I have one question from you as an artist that always working in art and technology and work in different mediums. And um, and I, I know that so many call you visual artists as, as an artist. And um, some people call you film director. How do you see yourself? Are you, you do you use film what do you use in art? Um, is it only film? Um, do you are you satisfied with this medium? That because I noticed that many of um, research base um, basically project you're doing um, end up as a medium of film. How do you feel about it? Do you think that it's the best way to talk about what you think? <laughs> um, yeah. I usually think of myself as, uh, I mean, I have an, an art background. At the time when I studied art, video was not a medium yet. So I went out later with a little Sony camera and started to um, film. <laughs> um, never visited an, a film class in my life. I, I, I don't feel very comfortable being called film director because I don't have the, 
I don't have those skills or I'm not operating in the film industry in that sense. I've always operated as an artist in art spaces, in art biennials, in museums. And these works are also um, installations um, that have a spatial component to it. Um, but my work has always been very research-oriented, that's for sure. And therefore, the format of the essay has actually been more to my taste. It ha the video essay is, is not documentary, but it uses documentary materials to think about the world and about society and so on. So there is always a kind of a voice over, an overarching narrative that I create that is more of a theoretical kind. But I'm always going into the field to actually connect it to these micropolitics on the ground, to make them embodied, to make them more suggestive too. I mean, I've started also in this uh, forest mine, I'm using performances um, and I'm using poetic language now also much more. Before I was, um, when I was still working on these globalization issues, uh, I was just very, a very um, theoretical, a theoretical narrative, um, never explaining what you see in the images, always off, you know, and always with a different soundtrack, so you don't become um, kind of folkloric. Um, when connecting to other cultures, always keeping them in the digital environment. And, um, but these are just things that, uh, that I started to practice because of, um, not because I learned them in a particular way, but because I felt the necessity to speak about things differently and to create these female um, science fictional figures, you know, um, that, that transport you into a different dimension also a bit, you know, and, um, um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, it's interesting because also, um, we, we watched them as films on one screen tonight, um, and is it Forest Mine that had the projection when it's an installation? It's a huge wall that's got one, you know, it's projected, and then the projection down from the ceiling in the round. Is that Forest Mine or Forest Law? Yeah, Forest Mine. Forest Mine. It's a two channel video. They're synchronized. And the large one that you saw here, it's usually like twice the size down to the floor, so you can kind of stand in the forest. It's a very different experience. And then there's the second video, which is a round projection from ceiling down to the floor, uh, which constantly relates a bit to what is being said, but it's only images. It's like a subtext um, to what's going on in the main video. And then the, the sound is surrounding as well. So the sound and, is equally yeah. as important as the visual images. Yeah, yeah. And the space. Um, to kind of get into your question, it's like multiple things, and we're seeing one iteration of it. And there's right. also the book iteration of it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but I, I like it because it's like there's no one way in. There's no master text. 
it's all these texts that exist. It's composed, yeah. yeah. And sometimes I'm putting things in the film because I know I want to be speaking about it in the book afterwards, you know. <laughs> um, I already know that there will be these multiple um, levels of reading the material. And the video essays, my video essays, have always been too dense. You need to look at them a couple of times to really grasp all the, the, the text that is in there. Um, a bit like a book that you put, you pick up again at the later point and you reread a chapter or something. I think of my works more like that, actually. It's interesting because I had watched them you know, in the summer before. And watching them again tonight, I'm like, they seem more dense now oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> than the first time, which is funny because usually the first time you're overwhelmed and then the second time you kind of know what to expect and go into it. I mean, overwhelmed in a good way. I mean, I really liked it. I liked all the things that I hadn't noticed the first time. Yeah, what I'm not able to explain in detail is this whole DNA research that I did with how these images came about and, and what I do with them. But that's something I spare for the book, you know, because I don't think the, the video is the place to uh, unravel the whole thing in that same way. Um, also with the installation, um, the DNA, the experiment that you did with the actual DNA is in the sign. Do you want to talk about that in the actual the material? Well... I'm not probably not using the right words to, to paraphrase. Well, it's a, it's a, um, the DNA is the actual DNA of this endangered rainforest is put in the paint, and I, I paint a, a patch on the on the wall, and usually you don't scratch off that patch after the exhibition is finished. You just paint over it so that this DNA of the rainforest will be forever inscribed in the museum walls, you know, like in this archaeology of the museum. So there's another dimension where... Uh, I, I was just really interested in, in the idea that the actual seed, the biology, and the representation of that can be put into the one and the same DNA strand um, which is really heaven for me. It means that you can, you can um, undo, you can do away with the difference between life and its forms of representation. You know, that's what every artist would like. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> yeah. Okay, other questions? Okay, here we go. Um. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is Raphael Song, and uh, I am a professor in mechanical engineering uh, at NIAD. And I teach a core course uh, called Bioinspiration uh, during the fall semester. And I found a lot of interesting things that uh, connect my course uh, with your films. Um, so um, the Bioinspiration course is about looking at various models in nature and try to get inspiration. Um, to develop various products that we can use in our daily life or that can solve problems in the world. And this is sort of the, the, the goal of this course. And uh, one of the textbooks uh, I'm, I'm suggesting to, to students to read uh, is 
a book called uh, By Mimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature, mm -hmm. is by Janine Benyus. Mm -hmm. And she actually formulated sort of credo of biomimicry um, by um, listing nine laws. Um, so it's in, in. so one of them is called um, Nature um, uh, Banks on Diversity. And this is, I think, uh, very much connected to your first film, uh, which is uh, looking at uh, sort of uh, sound ecology as an indicator of um, health of, <clears throat> in nature. I mean, if there is a sound, if there's a various uh, sounds coming from various uh, animals and, and living things, it's very loud and I think this is something we can use as indicator of um, how healthy the nature is. Otherwise, if there's no sound, then obviously there's no living things. Yeah. And this is sort of indicator of like uh, pollution and I think, so when I first read your title of the film, I said, okay, this is very much connected to nature banks on diversity, which is sort of, and your second film uh, about um, the, uh, the forest mind um, is very much connected to, uh, I think one of the laws that call, that says something like, um, nature demands local expertise. So that uh, is- Sorry, I didn't get that. Nature, nature, nature demands local expertise, uh -huh. um, which says, I think, in order to live in with nature or live in this um, Amazon forest, you need to have local expertise, right? You need to understand nature, you need to really maybe communicate with nature as well, get expertise and knowledge from nature through communication, through empirical experience, as you said. So I found this is really a uh, very nicely connected to my course that I'm teaching right now. Wonderful. And, and I asked my student to come to this uh, talk and to watch your movies and, and listen to your, um, uh, but do I see some? <laughs> well, but I, I think, so this is sort of my common rather question. So I, I would love to actually uh, know more about your work and maybe uh, use uh, your films in my course um, to to you know to inspire them. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think the United Nations has understood also by now that the uh, biodiversity and the diversity of knowledges are connected. They have co-evolved over millennia. Mm -hmm. So much so that if one of them dies, the other one dies too. Right. So you cannot do without the knowledge that people have. Uh, not just in a, in a physical way, you know, that I know this plant and therefore and so on. But really as a co-evolution. The knowledge is part of this evolution. And, um, and that's, that's really fascinating. It almost takes on its, its, its own being, you know. All right, if there are no more questions, I think we will wrap up and then we can actually ask other questions in private. Yeah. So once again, a huge round of applause for Ursula Beeman. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.